Hey, uh, glad that you guys are here. Uh, again, just welcoming you uh, to Easter service and uh, honor that you guys are here. I did want to just, just quickly uh, just recognize, maybe honor some of the teams. You know, I'm thinking about some of these teams that served. I, I, I looked at some numbers um, this week, and it, to make Easter happen this week and right here, took 112 people to volunteer. So I just wanted to honor those 112 people. Just through a round of applause. There were some people here at 6.30 this morning um, just working, just making sure that environments were set up. Uh, there were people here at 9 o'clock Thursday night uh, making sure that songs sounded and looked right. And all of it is so that we can create an environment that, that helps people know God. That, that's really the goal. Um, the goal is when you leave here today that you wouldn't say, oh, that church, that was, that was cool how they, how they had so much haze in the room <laughs> and how they had lights and how the music was so loud. Like, I felt it in my chest. Like, kudos to the corners, just so you guys know, the subs, uh, the subs, the subs will bless you. <laughs> the subs will bless you. And uh, the subwoofers. <laughs> but uh, but uh, seriously, thank you. Um, w- w- sometimes we ask ourselves, why, why are we doing this? We don't have three services every week, just so you know. Um, we have two services weekly at 9.30 and 11 o'clock. But why, why do we put so much effort into Sunday morning, but especially Easter? Um, Easter is an incredible celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, for, for many, it's, it's a tradition. And I think we should hold fast to traditions. Uh, traditions are a beautiful thing, actually. Um, but if we leave here just experiencing a tradition without truth, then we left a lot on the table. Um, traditions sometimes can be weird, and sometimes you don't even know where they come from. Uh, last night, we were sitting outside enjoying the thunderstorm. Anybody else like to enjoy thunderstorms? Like, yeah, like it's awesome. Well, I was out there, and we were talking, and uh, a lightning, or lightning hit, and I'm going, one, two, three. You guys know what I'm doing. You know what I'm doing. And I was like, and I said, oh, it's X amount of miles. So, I said, so it's, you know, it's a mile for every second is what I was saying. And then I started, anybody else do that just out of curiosity? Okay, so why? Do you actually know if that's true? <laughs> After I did it, somebody said, well, like, why, what are you, why are you doing that? Is that actually real? And I said, well, yeah, of course, <laughs> of course. How do you know? Because I've done it forever. <laughs> my mom and dad did it. My grandma and my grandpa. If you're from the South, mama and papa, whatever it is, you know. You know, like, that. just because what we do. Uh, does anybody actually know if that's true? Come on, weatherman. Come on. It's wrong, isn't it? It's not exactly one for one. So this tradition is bunk. All of us are counting on our fingers for no reason. What's the actual answer? Do you know? Whoa. That's the truth that makes the tradition matter. <laughs> okay. Like, all of a sudden, like, if we can do that calculation, it's probably something like every five seconds is a mile, something like that. But, like, but all of a sudden, when you hear the truth, it makes the tradition matter that much more. Now, then there's just some traditions that are just weird, let's be honest. Like, they have no meaning. I was, I was uh, Googling this week just unique traditions. And in India, there's a 550-year-old tradition that families, uh, when they have a, a newborn, like a firstborn, what they do is they go to the temple and they go to the pinnacle of the temple 
and the family gathers uh, there at the base of the temple. And what they do is like the family, friends, co-workers, like their community, they stretch out like a cheesecloth, like one big net, and the family with the newborn throws the baby off for good luck. And when the baby, yeah, okay, all of us are kind of like, yeah, like I don't subscribe to that one, just, <laughs> just so you know, but most of us would acknowledge that that's a, all the, a safety hazard. <laughs> I was going to say a weird tradition, but <laughs> one, two, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> like, that's a weird tradition. It's a unique tradition. And today is a very traditional day. And we can either choose today to leave it at the tradition, to where we do all the things that surround it, we enjoy the weekend, or we can look for something bigger in the tradition. Easter is a time, it really shouldn't be the only time, but it is a time where Christians celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But think about this. Let's, let's use our brains for just a couple moments, or, or as long as you want, but in order for something to resurrect, it first has to be dead. So the truth and the power in the resurrection of Jesus is that there was a moment in time where he was dead. So what we're going to do today is to talk about resurrection. But uniquely enough, we're not going to speak just about Jesus' resurrection. We're going to actually go back about 10 days before Jesus' resurrection when another man is resurrected. 10 days before Jesus goes in and is executed, another man is about to be resurrected. The story will be in John chapter 11. And really, the whole account of this man named Lazarus is in John 11, and it's about 40 verses. We won't hit all 40 today. We will start in verse 3, though. It says this, the sisters sent word to Jesus. The sisters are Mary and Martha, who you've seen, if you've been around church or read the Bible a little bit, you've probably heard these two names before. Um, these are significant people to Jesus. But it says, the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. The one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. little context for you. Um, Jesus loves this family. I know Jesus loves all the children, all the children in the world, but this was a, a special family to him. Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. Lazarus, uh, we see just through the word of God that they all lived together, not, not Jesus, but Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, uh, which would indicate that Mary and Martha had either been widowed or that they had never been married. So in those days, the brother's responsibility was to care for the family. So Lazarus is the, the care uh, for Mary and Martha. And Mary and Martha send word. You see through the word of God that Jesus has been around this family. They've been through some good times. They've been through some bad times. Um, they've dined together, hung out in this house together. And Mary and Martha send word to Jesus, say, Jesus... Your friend, the one that you love, is sick. And he says, hey, don't worry. The sickness is not going to end in death. 
he sends word back to him. Actually, he's speaking to his disciples. This word never actually gets back to Mary and Martha. But he says, y'all, he's hanging out with his disciples. He says, this sickness isn't going to end in death. He says, actually, it's going to glorify God uh, so that God's son himself may be glorified through it. He says that uh, he has a plan for this man's life. He has a purpose. And in the same way that he had a plan for life and life abundantly for Lazarus, I believe that he has a plan uh, for you as well, a, a plan that is going to have some ups and downs, is going to have difficulties, but it's going to be full of life if you choose to follow him. But it doesn't negate the fact that Lazarus is sick, and we realize in the next few verses that Lazarus is really sick, like really, really sick. It says this in verse 11, it says, after he said this, he went to tell them, this is his disciples, he says, hey guys, so this is actually a couple days later, he says, guys, our friend Lazarus, he says, he's, he's asleep. He said he's fallen asleep. He said, but guys, I'm going to go wake him up. So it's like, okay, okay, like why are you telling me this? Like that's usually not newsworthy, if we could be honest. Hey, hey, y'all, my man over here is asleep. I'm going to go wake him up. I didn't realize your son is asleep, sorry. But, you know, that's cool. I'm not going to wake him up, okay? But, but the disciples are like, okay, Jesus. But the next verse brings a little clarity why Jesus was saying this. He says, so he tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead. He says, and for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you may believe. But, he says, guys, let's go to him. Let's go to him. Jesus is going to wake up Lazarus. Most of us don't use words like asleep when referring to death, but in those days, actually, asleep was common, uh, common terminology because of Jewish orthodoxy that had been taught. And there was a phrase that was kind of used in that that we'll get to in just a minute. But Jesus is going to wake up his friend. But he's also going to wake up a whole lot of people's belief. He's going to wake up a whole lot of people's faith and the reality that Jesus is who he said he was. So Lazarus is dead in this moment. And the hero of the story, Jesus, is making his way to Bethany. Uh, Bethany is the town in which Lazarus was, the residence was. Uh, just a fun fact, La uh, Bethany is about a mile and a half from Jesus' crucifixion site. So he's not far from the spot that he'll be in 10 days when he himself is dead. But... A mile and a half. I wonder what that journey was like, knowing that he's fully God and fully man. I wonder if there was just thoughts going through his mind, knowing what was coming for him. We can't necessarily speak specifically to that, but we do know that he's drawing close to the place and time of his death, but he's still ministering to people in the midst of great torment in his own self. He shows up. Is he welcomed with an excited group of Jews and Mary and Martha? No, not necessarily. It actually shows us that he shows up, and Mary and Martha, his close friends, are quite upset with him. Verse 21, his first encounter with Martha, she says, Lord. says, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. We have to, sometimes we forget that the Bible is like real people 
and we withdraw ourselves from like the emotions and the feelings and just the reality of the people that live. <laughs> These are real people experiencing pain. Their brother, their, in this instance, their provider, he's gone. And they knew Jesus had healed other people when they were sick. And they were like, Martha's like, if you'd been there, my brother wouldn't have died. But then she says this. She said, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus says to her, he says, Martha, your brother's going to rise again. You would think in that moment, hope is here. And like, yes, your brother will rise again. Let's do this thing, Jesus. Here we go. Martha's response she decides to rely on the teaching that she's received. And she says the thing that she knows she's supposed to say. She says, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Let's talk about that. Martha and Mary and Lazarus, matter of fact, were Jews. They had been taught as Jewish orthodoxy that believes that there was a coming Messiah, and the coming Messiah one day, uh, when all things got wrapped up like the end of the world, like that kind of stuff, the end of the earth, that there would be a day that all that had fallen asleep, dead, would be risen from the dead. And Martha chooses in that moment to rely on the teaching that she received to bring some sort of peace and comfort. I know. <laughs> I know he's going to rise again. He's going to come back to life in the last days. I wonder if Martha was just a real person like us. You ever been in the spot where someone close to you has passed away or, or a friend or a family member that was a believer or you're around somebody that that's happened with and you, not knowing exactly what to say, you say the thing that is true. Hey, one day, one day it won't hurt. One day death will lose its sting. One day, and that is totally true. She relied on her teaching. Sometimes we, I'm trying to think how to say this without offending, but sometimes what we do is we just regurgitate the teachings that we've received. We've, we've heard it in our mind, but we haven't experienced it in our heart. And we use it almost as a shield from the true pain that we're experiencing so when things are bad all around us we're like hey God is good and you say back to me all the time and I say all the time God is good and we get in this cyclical thing where we can't stop saying it to each other because we don't know who's supposed to end it you know what I mean but we say that with good intentions but what takes place is we're not actually addressing the very thing that's hurting us right here. Jesus is standing right in front of her. But I'm here to say that sometimes we believe things in our minds, but not yet with our heart. And Jesus is about to change the way that Martha believes that teaching entirely. And I think he wants this for us. I think he wants us to see Easter not just as a story, but as a reality. So she says, 
yeah, in the resurrection, he's going to come back to life. And I have to believe that Jesus just stops for a second. He says, hey, Martha, look at me. And he says, Jesus said to her, this is the next verse, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection, resurrection is not a thing. The resurrection is a person. He says, Martha, it's me. And then he continues and he says, the one who believes in me, the one who believes in me that I'm the resurrection and the life, the one who believes in me will live, even though they die. It's like, even though they die, they're going to live. And he says, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die, even though they're going to die. And then he says, Martha, do you believe this? All of a sudden, all the teachings that she had been taught, that she grew up with, the understanding, the things that she had rehearsed, the things that she had said, the Pentateuch that she had to recite, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that you had to recite all this stuff, all of a sudden, all those things went, him, do you believe this? You ever had a moment when everything clicked? This is the moment for Martha. I don't know how long it took her to reply, but she replied. And she said, yes, Lord. She said, I believe that you are the Messiah. The one that I was taught about, the one that was going to bring hope back to my people, I believe you are the Messiah. I believe that you are the Son of God who has come into this world. Essentially, she was saying, yes, Jesus, I believe that you're the resurrection. Something shifted. Something happened. Something changed. The whole time Martha had the teaching, Martha had the tradition, but she was missing the truth that was standing right in front of her. The truth was there right she was very familiar with Jesus. He was there the whole time. For the last three and a half years, he's been there. Maybe there's some of you in this room that you're very aware of the resurrection story. You're very aware of the Easter experience. The question that maybe just allow the Holy Spirit to ask you is, am I aware of the tradition but missing the truth? The Bible says, Jesus said, hey, I am the way, I'm the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Am I so captivated by the tradition of Easter, but I'm failing to see that Jesus is the actual resurrection and life, that he's right here with me? Seek truth, not just tradition. When that check mark goes off in Martha and Jesus realizes it, like it clicked, <laughs> it clicked, Jesus says, Martha, go get your sister. I love that Jesus met Martha right where she needed to be met. 
There's no doubt she was an intellectual. There's no doubt she relied heavily on teaching. And he answered those big questions that she was having. He didn't just say, hey, just believe. Man, she needed proof. He provided the proof right in front of her to the teachings that she had always received. He met her right there in the intellect side of who she was, and it all made sense. And then he says, now go get your sister. Mary's different than Martha. Mary not necessarily needed the intellect side. You'll see what she needed in the moment. So Martha goes and gets Mary. She, after she's had this moment, she's like, Jesus is here. He's told me this. <laughs> like, things are getting crazy. But I, I'm just telling you, you just got to, like, sometimes you bring a person to church or you invite somebody you, like, don't even know the exact words to say. Like, I, don't, I can't really say it, but Jesus has just done something in my life, okay? This is what Martha's doing. She gets Mary to come over. And it says, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and she sees him, she falls at his feet. She falls at his feet. This isn't the first time she's been at his feet. The other time that you see in the scripture, she's, it's an act of worship. She's praising. She's worshiping. This time she's at his feet in deep pain and deep suffering. And she says the exact same thing that her sister said. She said, Jesus, if you would have been here, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. It's interesting that both Mary and Martha blame God. Like we don't like to say those types of things, but the truth is we can be tempted to blame God also. When things happen, can I tell you this? This is a safe spot to question certain things. We feel like we don't have faith if we have questions. You see two pillars of the faith in Mary and Martha questioning and voicing their concerns. Maybe you say, I'm not comfortable blaming God, but we can, most of us can admit that there's been times where we have questioned God. How many of us feel like God should have helped with something and he seemingly didn't? This is the moment. Remember, these are real people. Jesus is a real person. Martha's a real person. Mary's a real person. The Jews that are mourning with them are real people. They're feeling this. Verse 33 says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come along with her also weeping, it says he was deeply moved in spirit, and he was troubled. A lot of times we just skate over this. I mean, it, it's significant. He was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. But we're kind of like, man, he was moved, he was mad, that kind of thing. When you go look at these words, they're two very different words. They're two very different words. He's deeply moved in spirit is translated to he was outraged. Jesus was mad. Outraged. Moved in spirit. There's only one or two other times in the entire word of God that says Jesus was moved in spirit. He was deeply outraged. And the other time is going to take place four days later when he's in the temple flipping temples or flipping tables because people are making his father's house a den of thieves. He's outraged at something. But at the same time, so he's fully God, fully man. He, he's, he's experiencing different emotions at the exact same time. You ever been so 
overwhelmed that you're feeling all kinds of things. <laughs> Deeply moved in spirit and troubled. That word troubled means deeply saddened, pain, heartbroken, hurt. Two things, very different, completely present in Jesus, a man that's 33 years old at this time. And what does he do? What does he say? He's overwhelmed with emotion, but he says, where have you laid him? Where is my friend? Where is Lazarus? Where's your brother? Where's your caregiver? Where's my friend? Where's the one that you're weeping over? And Mary and Martha say, come here. I'll show you. And for those of you that might not be the whole intellect side, but you identify more with Mary, maybe the two most powerful words in all of Scripture appear in verse 35. Jesus wept. Knowing good and well that he was about to heal this man. What got Jesus so overwhelmed, so outraged, so deeply saddened, moved to tears? Theologians have argued about this, but I think you can be having, experiencing a lot of different things at one time. I believe he was mad because he was seeing the results of sin. This is what sin has done. Sin caused this. I don't think he was picturing Adam and Eve. I think he was picturing sin. It, God created us to be close to him. Sin distances us from him. Sin invoked the curse of death on humanity. He was seeing firsthand the results of sin. He was hurt. He was mad. He was outraged. Some theologians say that he was mad at the enemy, knowing good and well that a week later he was going to be going toe-to-toe -to -toe with him in his own fight. I've watched a documentary about a very popular boxer who some people say he's the most ferocious fighter of all time. And said that something happened to him weeks before fights, days before fights. And then he got into the spot where he was talking about when he'd walk out of the locker room and walking to the ring. When things got closer to his fight, things just became way more in focus. He said that when he was in the locker room, he was thinking, I might be able to beat this guy. I might not. He said the moment that he walked out of the locker room and he saw the lights and kind of the tunnel, he started to say, I'm going to beat this guy says step by step his confidence grew and he's like this guy doesn't stand a chance so when he walked into the ring when he would open up the ropes and he'd step in he said I'd already won the fight he was getting closer I wonder if some outrage and some emotion that Jesus was experiencing right there was realizing that just in a week later he's going to be in a heavyweight fight with the enemy it could be as simple as his friend hurts and for the first time he's feeling the deep pain that we experience, pain of loss, pain of loss that someone that mattered so much was no longer present. I think it was all of them. Jesus is at this spot, he weeps, and it moves him to action.
What is his action step? It says, one more time, Jesus was deeply moved. He came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. He says, take away the stone. He said, did I not tell you that if you believe me, you will see the glory of God? It says, so they took away the stone. Understand this, that Lazarus has been dead for four days now. Four days is significant. Not to be graphic, but this is the point where decomposure and decay is taking place, where the fragrance of death is present. So people know that this is not a show. People know that this is real because the evidence is real. Lazarus is dead. They saw it firsthand, and now they're experiencing it firsthand. It says, Jesus looked up to heaven, and he says this. He prays. He communicates to God, and he says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. He said, I know, I knew that you always hear me, but I'm saying this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. What did the audience do? Held their breath. I have a feeling the same way that humanity held their breath in that moment a week later. Angels were holding their breath when a stone was rolled away, when Jesus was coming back to life. All of humanity stood still saying, is it about to happen? The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him that point a revolution started a week-long revolution Lazarus he didn't start a preaching tour he was a living witness all of a sudden he was a living witness to the authority and the power of Jesus he was telling people and history tells us and teaches us that people that were once deniers of Jesus and his authority and the potential of who he was and who he claimed to be the Messiah were saying I believe that's what history, outside of the Bible, that's what historical books are saying, is that when Lazarus came back to life, there was an uproar in Bethany and in the holy city. People were like, yo, this dude was dead, and now he's alive. And people started to follow and surrender their life to Jesus. So much so that political organizations formed assassination attempts on Lazarus. Get rid of the evidence. In this story today, Jesus brought one man back to life. A week later from this story, Jesus is in, is in his own grave clothes. He had been crucified. He had been executed for something that he did not do but he took it on the chin for you and for me. He was in grave clothes. A week later, that stone was rolled away in front of his tomb. And a week later, his grave clothes were off of him. He was alive. He was resurrected. And in the same way that when Lazarus was resurrected, this man who raised one man from the dead 
all of a sudden and claim that anyone who believes in me, that they will inherit eternal life and they shall not die either. And a political uproar, a revolution occurred. Another assassination attempt to get rid of Jesus was on deck and Lazarus. A revolution occurred. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in this story. A week later, his death brought life available to all mankind. That is the power of Easter. That is the power of the tradition that we're celebrating. This is what matters. Romans 3 says that all of us are dead in our sins. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's standard, and we are dead in our sins. All of us are Lazarus. And today, Jesus is saying, wake up, wake up. It's your choice. It's a choice to either believe and respond to his words or not. I don't understand why God gave us free will. I don't. But I have a feeling that so that we would freely give back to him our lives. And that's the moment that you have the opportunity to do today. Would you bow your heads with me for just a minute? If you're in this room and it's almost like a voice inside of you, you don't even know exactly what it is. I, I believe that it's the Holy Spirit ministering to his church today. But you're saying right now, I I'm, I'm dead in my sin. I I've heard the story of the tradition of Easter. But today... Today's my Martha experience. It's like, oh, this is what it is. This is it. It's that check mark. And today you're saying, I need to surrender. Today's the day I get to surrender my life to the life, to the death, to the burial, to the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. If you're in this room with every head bowed, with every eye closed, I'm not going to ask you to come to the front or anything like that. I'm simply going to ask you to lift your hand up and put it down. I want to pray with you, pray for you. If you're saying, today's the day I want to give my life to Jesus. Thank you so much. Anybody else that says yes, thank you so much. And this is your moment. Nope, thank you so much. Thank you, I see you. That's great. This is dead things coming to life. One more time, if you haven't raised your hand but you're saying, Hey, this is for me. Just slip your hand up and put it down. I want to pray with you. Thank you so much. What I want to do is I want to pray. I want to lead you in a prayer of salvation. And the Bible says that if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, you shall be saved. Today is the day. Simply pray this prayer after me. God in heaven, I'm separated from you. I know it, but I'm not leaving separated from you. Today, I, I choose to believe the truth in the tradition of Easter. I believe that you came to this earth, you lived a perfect life, you died a death that I deserved, you rose from the grave, and you ascended to heaven. And I choose to believe that. Today I give you my life. You've saved it 
And God, you'll lead it. I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.